If you would, this morning, we'd love to invite you to turn to Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, the second book. You can do this. We're going to look at a couple of select passages. And as the kids are uh, leaving, um, isn't it great to see these families? Topher just prayed and we just dedicated. But it's just fun to see these families and, and these names. I love names like Annabelle and Addie Love. Isn't that good? Just a lot of beautiful names. We didn't do that back in the day. We didn't have gender reveal parties. And we didn't name some of the names that we named today. But it's good. It's all good. God bless you. Hey, while you're turning and we're making a transition, I do want to share with you something on my heart and want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to be a part. Y'all know I don't ask a lot of you, do, it, do, do I? I mean, your schedules are busy. You're hard-pressed consumer uh, trying to keep up with the pace of modern life. And we try to be deliberately simple here to call you into community and to serve and to make a Sabbath rest, a time of worship, a regular part of your schedule. And we are not overly programmed. I think you would uh, agree with that. I want to challenge each of you to look at your calendars. Uh, pay attention to the sermon in a second, but just take out your iCal and lock in uh, next Wednesday night. Not this Wednesday night, but next Wednesday night. We're going to have one of my favorite dudes come to Fondren Church. We're grateful for some folks who have a marketplace ministry uh, here in the Jackson metro area who've partnered with Fondren Church. And we're bringing Bringing in the uh, author of The Fatherless Generation, a man by the name of John uh, Sowers. John is uh, best buds. This will mean a lot to some of you, especially you young people. But uh, John is uh, best friends with Donald Miller. Uh, I know a couple of our college kids are reading Donald's new book called Scary Close about community and intimacy and all. And John Sowers and Donald Miller and some of these guys are on the front end in our country, respected not just as people of faith, but because they're preachers and practitioners of looking at mentoring. Um, John has been in uh, the president's Oval Office, the last two, the current president and the prior president, and he's saying things, writing things, and speaking to, I believe, uh, what ought to be at the center of the heart of our church, thinking about our neighborhood, thinking about West Fondren, thinking about uh, the ministry uh, that we can have. And God's blessing our church. On Tuesday night, I stepped into, into Red Door and sat down with a young man, a 13-year-old named Caleb. And I've got a 13-year-old girl in my own household. And I began, as I looked into, into his eyes, uh, I began to think about his story and who is he now and who is he going to become. And we need mentoring and we need to think about the impact of being light right here in the Jackson metro area. So I'm asking you to consider. Um, there, there's a chance that we're going to have some folks, some dignitaries and luminaries here uh, as we're making contact with them and they've shown interest that they can carve out time in their schedule. So be here if you can. It's at 6.30. We're going to worship and then we're going to hear from John. And I believe it's going to be some really important stuff in the life of our church and for, um, for our community. Just nod your head if anybody was listening to what I said. I don't do a lot of promotions, a lot of commercials um, around here. We, we're in a series um, about Moses. We're asking the question, where is God? And, and the series, I was inspired through this passage, Exodus chapter 17 and verse 7. And he, he is Moses, who looked a lot like Charlton Heston or, or Brian Williams, apparently. And he, Moses, called the name of the place Mesa and Meribah. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, and here's that question, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Ever been there? I mean, maybe you can't say it when you got to give the nice 
Christian cliches and the pleasant platitudes of living in community with other people of faith. But I think if we're real and raw, we get to that place where we say, is the Lord among us or not? That's another way of asking the question we're asking, where is God? And over these weeks, we've already asked the question, where is God when I'm waiting? Where is God when I'm wounded? Where is God when I'm dealing with change? And this morning, we're asking the question, where is God in the desert seasons of my life? Susan, my wife, called me yesterday, texted me, actually, nobody calls, right? But she, she texted me, and she said, guess what? My, my dad called. And with great exclamation, she said, hey, they're, they're, today they bought a home in the desert. Now, when we think of the desert, honestly, for our family, uh, we think of the Coachella Valley of Southern California with communities like Palm Desert, Palm Springs, Indian Wells, and La Quinta. There's been uh, famous celebrities dead and gone now, many of them that have lived there and made it famous. Uh, Dinah Shore and Bob Hope and Elvis and Frank Sinatra and former President Gerald Ford. It's a beautiful desert community. And I thought yesterday how uh, ironic and a little bit fun and fascinating that the very uh, day that I'm finishing writing a sermon on where is God in the desert that my in-laws are buying a home in the desert? Now, when we're talking about the desert, for us, it's a place where we've had special memories in the past, a place that we anticipate building some great memories in the future. It's got a swimming pool and a little putt-putt place out back. It's got a guest home that's also will be a place for the Fondren Church pastor's sabbatical when, that, when the elders allow me a sabbatical, Right? But when we think of the desert, we're not thinking of the fun place of golf and tennis, cactus and coyote. We're describing a desert this way. Now, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the word wounded, it, we thought it good to, to, to define it. We'll do that with the desert. A desert is simply this. It's a season. Notice the words that are underlined. It's a season when life is difficult and God seems distant. And in the desert, I want to say this about this place. The desert can either, it can do this. It can ruin you or it can refine you. Now, if you read Exodus 15 to 17, by the way, those of you who are in small groups and you're doing, you're following along with the sermon series, some of you are digging deeper. If you're going to dig deeper, you got to want to dig deeper, right? And we've made available to you a book by Charles Swindoll, a book on Moses. It's a great way to dig deep to learn more about this guy. But you'll look this week, if you're following along with the series in Exodus 16, you'll, you'll be asked to read that entire chapter and you'll be given pertinent questions. It's already available online. But Exodus 15, 16, and 17, these three chapters uh, provide for us a, one single unit of Scripture that gives three stories that contain two seemingly uh, incompatible and contradictory ideas. The first is the graciousness of God. The second, Israel's grumbling. God's graciousness and Israel's grumbling. Now, here's what I want to submit to you this morning. If you're a note taker, you could write these two passages down. Your God, my God, our God, is a God of both Exodus 3, 7, and he's a God of Exodus 13, 17. Now, God in Exodus 3, 7, it says that he hears their cry. We put that passage up three weeks ago. God hears the cry of his people. He knows their suffering. Now, in his time and on his terms, 
He's the one that can alleviate that suffering, that can walk people through that. But he hears their cry. Your God, Exodus 3, 7, tells us, is a deliverer. But Exodus 13, 17 tells us that there's a roundabout way, that he's the God of the roundabout way. Now, we talked about this in week one and following, that God is a deliverer. There's two acts of deliverance or liberation that we see in this book of Exodus. The first is getting his people, delivering them out of slavery. The second is delivering slavery out of the people. The first act of deliverance, of liberation, took an instance. The second act took 40 years. The first act was spawned when the nation of Israel, they were a small group of people. And this tribe, this small tribe became a small nation and an insecure Pharaoh. They didn't have mental health assessments back then, but he was paranoid schizophrenia and he struggled with that. And he, he became afraid as the Israelites grew larger. And in his paranoia, he decided to shackle them, to enslave them, to oppress them. And God hears them. God says, I will be a deliverer. And in an instant, he delivers them. Because God can do that. He can work in an instance. In fact, to use Paul's phrase from 1 Corinthians 15, God can do a work in your life in quote-unquote in the twinkling of an eye. But we learn that more oftentimes than not, he's a God of the roundabout way. You and I will have to log some time in the desert. There could be many, many days in the desert. We have to go the way of the wilderness. Now, God, in the, first, in the first act of deliverance, he brings them out in an instance, as we said, out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. And then, then what? He leads them. We've talked about this, right? The manna from heaven. We looked at that last week. The cloud that he guides them by, by day, and the pillar of fire at night. And there's a couple of ways that you would think that God would guide his people. There was the international trade route, uh, known in the Bible as the way of the Philistines. And there was also a route that they could take right through the middle of the Sinai Peninsula. But what, what does God do? Faulty GPS, apparently, but the cloud goes south to the desert. What? That way? Why? Why that way? Why, why, why the roundabout way? And if you'll read Exodus 13, 17, verses 17 and 18, you'll see that God has a plan. And it is a plan, listen church, it's a plan that they do not understand. It's a plan different than what they want. And I'll say it again. Our God is the God of the roundabout way. There will be for you a way of the wilderness. There will be days in the desert. The desert is what? It's a season when life is difficult and God seems distant. But it is a season for you that will either ruin you or refine you. Let me say this about the desert. It's a place you don't want to be. You don't want to go to the rugged, dry, arid, barren desolate place called the desert. Nobody wants to log into the desert to sign up for this. This week, my wife and I were signed up for an event out in the reservoir, a very 
chilly morning where temperatures reached freezing the night before. Um, Jenny Woodruff, because I love to call out names, Jenny Woodruff uh, signed us up to do the Polar Palooza. I saw some of you out there, right? I saw some of you out there watching us, not jumping in, but watching us. We did on Valentine's Day, we did the Lover's Leap at the Polar Palooza, jumping into chilly waters for a good cause, the Special Olympics, and to make Jenny happy because that's what pastors do, right, with our congregation. You can sign me up for anything. I'll do it if the cause is good and you'll love me. And we went out and we jumped in. We did something we did not want to do, the polar palooza. Do you realize it tested the very love in my marriage when, when Susan found out that I was signed up and that she was a part of this? It tested us. You're looking at her now, right? If you have a view of Susan, it really tested. Do you realize how fragile she is? <laughs> and to jump into that water so cold. It was a place that we didn't want to be, honestly. And so it is in the desert seasons. There's a season of the desert, and how do you know? You just know, don't you? Because uh, often the trajectory is this way. We begin, and things are fresh and exciting. They're, they're new. They're novel. We embrace being a part of a church family. We crack open the book, and it seems that we're getting something out of it. We pray prayers, and guess what? They're prayers of faith and expectancy. But either a slow drift or an event triggers. And if we're not careful, we can go to that deep, dark night of the soul, as one writer frames it. And we wonder, in the middle of our despair and our doubt, if there really is a God who loves and hears and helps and heals. And the desert is that place where it can ruin you or it can refine you. Pastor Andy Stanley in Atlanta said his church gathered and they, they began to look and think, what is it that really makes a Christ follower grow? And they looked at every different facet of growth. And he said that they put it to five things. They said practical teaching, private disciplines, personal ministry, providential relationships, and lastly, what they called pivotal circumstances. And in this, this idea that you're going to grow, you're not going to grow unless you hear the teaching. I think of my own life when I first accepted Christ and some of the guys who just lit a fire under me to learn the Bible. And I've thought through the years of some guys like Tim Downs and Tim Muehlhoff and J.P. Moreland and Crawford Loritz and some other guys that inspired me through their teaching of God's Word. You'll need practical teaching in your life. Uh, you'll need more than this. Some of you think I'm threatened. I'm not. I love it when you find some men and women who teach the Bible, who are gifted to do that, and you spend time during the week learning from these men and women. Practical teaching is important. So is private disciplines. Sabbath, simplicity, solitude, learning to listen to the voice of your father, learning to Adopt practices and habits of your heart where you're orienting your life, not just to head knowledge and correct theology, but to a heart that's ordered, 
where feet will follow after Jesus. Private disciplines are very important. And it, God has to, he has to conform our desires for us to live those out. Practical teaching and, and private disciplines are important. So is personal ministry. You're not going to grow unless you get out there and trust God for something. You're not going to grow if your life is about uh, being contained to yourself. You're not going to grow if it's just about you gaining knowledge. It's one of the weaknesses of our seminaries. And thank God our seminaries are learning. They're moving into the future to know that they must engage the head and the heart. And it's personal ministry that does that. You will not grow by faith. I asked you last week, how will you know if you're growing in your faith? And you've got to be out there. God desires, you know he's gifted you? He's gifted you. We're going to look next week about Moses when he said, I feel inadequate. But even though you feel inadequate, guess what? I do too. But God has gifted you. He's given you a gift and wants you to use it. And along with practical teaching and private disciplines and personal ministry, you'll grow. And you'll grow with providential relationships. You know, you'll never be in a small group. You'll never be hanging out over coffee with a few friends. You'll never be able to ask those folks, hey, how have you grown? How has God worked in your life? You'll never have an opportunity where someone won't share about God, someone that God put in their lives. Aren't relationships important? They're, they're vital. I remember um, years ago, uh, a guy that pastors a little church down the street called Pine Lake. We were, we were students, and we were sitting out in a car, and we were laughing at some of the trouble that we had gotten into. And some of the dumb decisions that we were making. And we were, you know, kind of had a foot in the world and a foot in the church. And we had a, a conversation about what it meant to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ. And I think about how God used me in his life. And how God used him in my life. And it's funny to me. Honestly, it's funny to me to think all these years we're pastoring churches. I feel like the guy who played basketball with Michael Jordan who said, hey, we, Jordan and I combined to score 62 points last night. He scored 60. I scored two, right? I mean, that's kind of how I feel talking about that guy. But God has used him. And recently in my life, he has told me, man, if it weren't for you back then, I don't know if I would be here today. And that blows me away. Not alive, probably, but just pastoring a church. And I think it's crazy because guess what, y'all? I didn't know it at the time. I was a rogue, renegade, dumb student. But when God began to orient me with a love for his word and also a, a love for life, God began to use me to impact some people because people are always watching. And God will use people in your life. And guess what? Despite you, despite me, he'll use us in the lives of other people. But along with practical teaching and private disciplines and personal ministry and providential relationships, God uses, and I love this because it reminds me of the desert, he uses pivotal circumstances. Now, pivotal circumstance can be a good thing. Don't you want that? A, a pivotal circumstance could be a door of opportunity that's open for you. It could be God's provision in your life. It could be a promotion or a great health report. It could be some of the things that we talked about earlier, showing up in a big way in your life that's pivotal. That when you're sitting in the car in your years wondering which way you'll go and is God really calling you to ministry, it pivots you to go the way that he's called you to go, even if it's the way of the wilderness. But church, we want to preach the whole Bible. We want to preach the way life really is. And the way it is 
is that sometimes, if not many times, those pivotal circumstances are tough. It's a desert. It's a place where you feel that your prayers are not being answered. That freshness we talked about earlier, it's gone. And to quote one of my favorite contemplative authors, just because God seems silent doesn't mean He's absent. And sometimes these pivotal circumstances in your life will leave you wondering and thinking and maybe even believing, yes, dare I say, you even believing that God is absent, and that He's apathetic or even angry. And God wants to use the pivotal circumstances in your life. The desert, what? It can ruin you or it can refine you. Picture with me, um, we're hanging out. We're hanging out by a swimming pool. I'm wearing a conservative one-piece. And there's a, there's a large man in the swimming pool, and he goes under. And the lifeguard notices that he's in the pool, but not just in the pool, he's in trouble. And lifeguard, probably chiseled and looking good, jumps into the pool. And as he swims over to rescue drowning man, he realizes that drowning man is really large. And drowning man has reached a state of panic. And drowning large men in a state of panic in, a wa- in water do what? They slap at the water. They are frightened. They are struggling. Now, large frightened man is yelling help help as best as he can he's beginning to take in water and he's slapping lifeguard everything in him as he goes to the scene he swims just a few feet from loud drowning panicky man and he waits he does what is counterintuitive to human nature he doesn't go right in for the rescue he does what lifeguard training taught him to do as he watched episodes of Baywatch. And he waits. He waits for large drowning man what? Large drowning man is doing everything in his own strength. Everything in his own ability. Everything according to his own method. And lifeguard needs large drowning man to come to the end of himself. To come to the end of his strength. Of his abilities. Of his methods of managing the situation. Oh, he's crying out for help, but he's doing everything in his power not to be helped. And you see, lifeguard waits till the man truly has nothing left. He takes him to his side because he's well-trained in the buoyancy of the water. He brings the man to the side. The drowning man has a Savior. But in order to have a Savior, he has to get to the end of himself. Now, I'm mixing metaphors, aren't I? We're in a desert. But you know, there's swimming pools in the desert. But you've got to get to the end of yourself to know for your Savior to help you. You see, God can and He does. And I love the stories. In fact, if you got a story, email me. God has done work in our church. He's healed people of cancer. He's brought life into our church. We have miracles in this very room. And there are things that God does in an instance. I believe we have a few of our own. The twinkling of an eye, God can work. And some of you 
who lean on one side theologically. You're thinking about Fondry Church being your church, and you're wondering, hey, pastor, what do we believe? I've said it before. I'm going to say it this morning. We want all of God's miracles to be made manifest in our church. We want to come around everyone and pray that God would do great things. But there's a hard season. And it seems to be the most prevalent way that God works. And for us to be at a place where we know we need Him. He brought, through a man named Moses, He brought the people of Israel out of Egypt in an instance. First act of deliverance. The people out of slavery. But the second act of deliverance was slavery out of the people. And y'all, I'm telling you, it took 40 years. Because they were still slaves to their circumstances. Slaves to their appetites and desires. Slaves to their worries and fears. In fact, Exodus 13, a passage you'll look at later, describes the way of the Philistines, the international trade route. It, the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 1-2 that it would only take them about 11 days. But God knew that they would come upon the Philistines and they would want to return to Egypt. Do you see? God knows your enemies better than you. And you're looking at this dry and barren place and wondering. But you're living with your strength and your abilities and managing things your, your way. And God has got to get you to an end of yourself so that he can bring that old mindset out of you. Because what does sin do, do? What does it do? Any counselors in the room, what does it do? It enslaves us. Let's don't act detached, right? I mean, sin enslaves us. It, it, it can get the best of us. And God in his providence says that only a wilderness or desert season can make a difference. We let him do his work. I'm going to quickly tell you three things that God can do in that desert season. He can, he can allow the desert to be a place of strengthening. Refining in the desert can be that. It can be a place of strength. Joseph was a great leader. In fact, when he was young, you know this, Joseph was told that, hey, Joseph, you will be a great leader. But Joseph was sold into slavery. He spent years in jail, uh, in an Egyptian jail. And he died never having gone to the promised land. In fact, in Exodus, we learn that Moses took Joseph's bones out of Egypt. God used Joseph, but Joseph knew the roundabout way. David was anointed king of Israel. But he spent time as a homeless fugitive, living in caves, running from a hostile king who wanted him dead. David knew the way of the roundabout God. Daniel was a man of great faith, great wisdom. If you want to study integrity, go to the book of Daniel and learn about this man. But Daniel learned about the roundabout way. When he was thrown into a lion's den. When I was little, I, I, although I'm old now, I have vivid memories of those days of being outside with my dad. And he taught me to ride a bike. Do any of you remember those days in your own life? And dad was behind me and he would, he would guide me with his hand when the training wheels came off. And he would push me and lovingly guide me. And my mother, God bless her, would watch from the window. 
And my dad would let go and I would fall hard. My mother couldn't bear to watch. She closed the curtains. Either the bicycle was lopsided or I was. And there was a point, I'm sure, where I said, hey, dad, can't you keep your hand here? Can't you keep running alongside of me? And I'm sure my dad probably said something along the lines of, hey, do you, Robert, do you want to be 25 years old and dad is still pushing the bike and running alongside of you? To which I'm sure I responded, yes, because it seemed preferable at the time. And you see, God wants in the desert seasons, wants to strengthen you. He wants to strengthen you. Uh, desert can be a place of strength. It can be a place of endurance. It'd be great if the desert was a place where it was one time only. Wouldn't you like that? Just one season in the desert. That's all we have to do. Log one season and we're done. It's, it's a one-time thing like getting vaccinated or having your wisdom teeth pulled. But the reality is that we have to probably spend multiple seasons of going in and out of the desert. Do you believe that? I do. If you study oysters, oysters will get a grain of sand in their shell and it will be an irritant to them. It will be an affliction. They will be anguished by this grain of sand that gets lodged into the shell. And what will an oyster do? Y'all know this? You don't know. You just eat them at Drago's there on uh, County Line Road. But an oyster will get this grain of sand and it will, it will coat it. It will apply a layer. And over and over again, the oyster will coat this grain of sand. And the result is a pearl. A pearl is produced because an oyster gets irritated. And a pearl is of great value to women and to Carter Jewelers. It has beauty and elegance and high value. A pearl is produced by an irritated oyster. James 1, 2 to 4. James writes, the half-brother of Jesus to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that these trials will produce what? It'll produce endurance. In one of the great passages of Scripture in Romans 5, it talks about we've been justified by faith. It's not anything that you do. Uh, God's salvation is a gift to you. You and I must be at the end of ourselves, needing a Savior to drag us to the shore. We've been justified by faith. And he goes on to say that suffering, that we will suffer. And this suffering will produce endurance. And endurance will produce proven character. And proven character will produce hope. And that hope will not disappoint because God's love is shed abroad in our hearts. And that's the third thing in closing. Uh, the time in the desert could be a time, a place of strength, a place of endurance, and a place of his love. Now here's what I know. Don't act like it's not true. You and I, we spend a lot of time, energy, and effort trying to show everybody how strong, smart, capable, and competent we are. We want to be friended and followed and liked and linked in and mentioned. We long to be respected and adored and sought after and fawned over and envied. But what if I told you today that you're drinking from a well that will never satisfy? Trust me. I know because the, the desire for approval has been one of my chief sins. I know what I'm preaching about right now. But what if I told you that the love of others is fickle? The love of others is like a, a panicky child that can't hang through the church service, right? They're with you and then they're not with you. That's the way 
human love can be. But what if I told you about another love? And that love can only be shown and demonstrated both ways, y'all. Reciprocal. Both ways. That we love God not just because of the gifts that He gives us, but because of who He is. That comes in a place of strengthening endurance. The way of the wilderness. The roundabout way. The time in the desert. And God can show us in some of the deepest, darkest seasons, in the desert seasons, that He loves us. We'll get there later, another time, but in Deuteronomy 32, it's one of those real big songs of Moses. And he's singing to the, singing to the Lord. He's declaring how good God is despite the desert times. And he says that, that God loves you. In fact, it's where we get the phrase, you are the apple of His eye. Is it enough? Is it enough that God loves me? Is it enough that he loves you? Would you pray with us? God, there's a roundabout way. There's a place called the desert. A place that is, thank, thank you God, that is a season where life is difficult and God, you seem distant. And God, I pray a simple prayer over those gathered here today. That we wouldn't let this place ruin us. But God, we would let it refine us. And that God, it that we could have over and over stories of deliverance uh, in an instance, in a twinkling, but even better probably over seasons where, Lord, we suffered, but we learned endurance and proven character and hope and a love that doesn't disappoint. And, Lord, I pray that your love would speak into us today. In Jesus, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing, church. But before we put the song up, I think there's, a, there's something I wrote in my journal yesterday morning. It goes like this. What if some of the greatest moments of our lives, let's start over. Maybe some of the most significant moments in our lives come not because it all went right, but because it all fell apart. We want to have an opportunity today to pray for you. Let's sing. Let's worship God. And we pray for just these few moments before we go that this place would be a place of prayer. We would love to pray for any need in your life uh, if you give us that opportunity. Pray that you would have the courage to take a few steps today.